Welcome to the Couch Potatoes. I'm Brett McGarry. This week, my appreciation for a pair of 90s action classics continues to grow. Plus, I'm Jeff Braun. A terrific murder mystery series returned this week, and I saw The Meg to the Trench. Plus, this week's new movies include a video game adaptation based on a true story? Emmys traditionally are in September and kick off the fall season of broadcast television. However, because of the strikes involving screenwriters and actors, there are not many TV series ready to go for the fall. Not only that, the striking writers and actors would normally work on the Emmy telecast or campaign for their shows. Fox says the Emmys have been moved to January 15th, the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday. The Creative Arts Emmys will be held a week earlier and air on Fox on January 13th. Succession leads the Emmy nominations with 20 I'm Archie Zaroleta. So the Emmys, they were talking about whether or not they would move, but they are going to now move to January 15th. The show will air on the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday. The interesting thing is that now the Emmy Awards are smack in the middle of the awards season. Yeah, um, I guess the Golden Globes would be, oh no, I guess all the little guilds, the SAG and all that, they all got TV sections, right? It's not just the Oscars that are movies only or something yeah. like that. So yeah, that's going to uh, add a little bit more grist for the mill in on already uh, more than overflowing award season. It's irritating enough as it is, so now it's even more so. I Except part of me sort of thinks they should permanently move it to January just and just have the calendar year be the be the cutoff points now they've got this like it's got till the end of april or may or whatever it is is Mm -hmm. the window and it's just always beyond bafflingly confusing and this year no different as better call Saul. better call Saul uh could potentially win an emmy in the year 2024 for an episode that aired in 2022 (laughs) so it's you know it's things like that that just kind of start getting ridiculous yeah that the timing on this i mean first of all the ceremony is going to happen roughly four months later than originally planned but the timing means that the Emmys, which honor the best shows on TV, will air just weeks before the Screen Actors Guild Awards, which honors, as you pointed out, film and television actors in the Golden Globes, uh, which haven't actually been confirmed for to even come back to network TV, and the Critics' Choice Awards are also held in January. So yeah, I do think that this will benefit the shows more. And it's not unprecedented. The first Emmys... Only six awards were handed out, were held in January of 1949. The Emmys now traditionally air in September, a slot that I think, and this makes sense as to why they did it, it was it was a way to kind of herald the upcoming fall yeah. television season. But that time, that was when broadcast TV was the dominant force, uh, and now everything's At, yeah. changed. Outside of reality shows and Abbott Elementary, Network shows aren't winning any Emmys anyway, so yeah. why not do a calendar year kind of uh, zone or whatever and just focus on the streamers and HBO shows? Yeah, but th- th- this strike, I, I got to tell then, you, right? I, thought the, I thought once the actors went on strike that this thing would have ended, but it looks like the studios are prepared to hold out as long as it takes or as long as they can. Yeah. And, and now people, especially on the lower end of the financial scale are starting to feel the heat. It's been going for a hundred days. Yeah. And I've heard of other, like some of the actors have started raising money for not even for the actors, but for other crew that are obviously affected. Like if you're just pulling cable on a, at a, on a production all day, every day, 
you know, you're not working either, but you're not on strike because you put just the production shut down. So it affects all the crew. Yeah. So it's just like the whole economy of Hollywood just hangs in the balance. So who knows when the who's going to blink first or whatever. And it's a big deal because um, it changes because they haven't had new contracts since the streamers really, really started dominating. And so it's, that sort of just changes everything, too. So it's important that they sort of everyone that they get this ironed out properly for everyone. Yeah. And the, the, the potential negative effects of this, like this could end up putting smaller production companies and independent studios out of business because no one's working. And then once it does end, uh, even if it were to end, there's going to be this gap of content like we're going yeah. to there uh, I bet you Netflix they they've always got a stockpile but it might not be the best stuff no, and uh, everybody's going to be struggling to find content we and we saw it with uh, you know movies during the pandemic like 2021 is going to go down as one of the worst movie years of all time easily and it's just because um you know mostly they blew it blew what they had in 2020 before the pandemic and then just stopped making stuff for a little while. All right. Well, this next show we're going to talk about here, that's an Emmy nominee, is it not? Or an Emmy winner, perhaps? It is. It's an Emmy nominee. It's, it may have won some smaller awards, but of course we're talking about season three of what might now be my favorite show. Uh, it came back this week. It's called Only Murders in the Building. <laughs> Is this really happening again? Well, you know, who are we without a homicide? One of the best shows on television is back. So are you in? Yeah. With a surprise <laughs> you never saw coming. Oh my God, it's me. Oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, I'm sorry, it's me. Isn't it? Only murders in the building. Shall we begin? Sight! So sick! Only on Hulu. Except in Canada, where it's only on Disney+. Plus. Only murders in the building stars Steve Martin, Martin Short, and Selena Gomez. They're neighbors in a fancy New York City apartment building called the Arconia. They were brought together in season one by their shared love of true crime podcasts. And when a murder happens in the Arconia, they get together to both investigate it and to do a podcast series on their investigation. In season two, another murder. Though this time, they were the suspects and had to investigate to clear their names. And now in season three, guess what? Yep, another murder. This time, Martin Short's character is directing a Broadway play. Steve Martin's character has a small part in that play as he was formerly a famous actor. And it's the lead of the play who was murdered. He's played by Paul Rudd. And that's all set up from season two. And I figure it was a bit of a, you know, a fun stunt casting getting Paul Rudd in your show. But he dies right away, so he only gets one scene. But no, they actually get to have their rudd cake and eat it too because the structure of the show is such that it features a lot of flashbacks to the months leading up to the murder. So even though he's technically dead, Rudd does get to be in a lot more scenes. And speaking of stunt casting, we heard in the clip there, Meryl Streep is in this. She plays another actor in the play. And in the first episode, you kind of get the vibe that she could have motive for this murder. Time will tell. She was not in the second episode, but apparently lives in their building as well. So I'm sure she'll pop up again. It's hard to tell. I've seen her only listed in that one episode, but there's no way that they're done with her character. Even if they were to like kill her off, she'd still have to show up in some flashbacks, I would think. So I assume Meryl Streep is in more than just one episode. They sometimes are cagey with the number of episodes it says certain actors are in an IMDb's just so they don't give away the ghost before it happens kind of a thing. So we'll see. It's uh, That's the fun of a murder mystery show. You never really know where it's going to go. And the history of this show makes me feel comfortable enough that I'll be down with whatever 
they end up doing. I don't remember feeling cheated by the show, like some murder mysteries where the reveal is so ludicrous you just roll your eyes. It sort of feels like only murders in the building plays fair that way. It's one of those things where it's satirizing these kind of stories, but also effectively telling such a story, like the movie Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story, which is a very silly spoof about musical biopics, but it's also a terrific example of how to make a musical biopic. And actually, I think Walk Hard ruined me for other musical biopics. I think that's why I was so underwhelmed by Bohemian Rhapsody, for example. It was like it's like trying to watch a magician after he's explained all the tricks. Uh, you know, who cares? Only Murders, of course, is also very funny. It can't not be when you have Martin Short on your show. He is naturally, effortlessly funny, and when he turns it on, he's even funnier. He's great in this. I think he's the only one who got an Emmy nomination for their acting this time around for season two, of course. And while he's very funny, as you would expect, he's also doing some quality, dramatic work, uh, and they all are. Some other series regulars return in the form of their neighbors, most notably so far as uh, Michael Cyril Crichton, who plays Howard. He's a that guy. You'd recognize him. Uh, I think he played Dexter's boss at the Outfitter's shop in that Dexter's reboot. Uh, he's also he's just a welcome addition to any cast. Whenever I'm watching that guy pops up, I get excited. So we're two episodes in with eight more to go. There's going to be one new one every Tuesday on Disney Plus from here on out. So far, it's mostly been set up stuff, laying the groundwork for what I assume will be a couple of red herrings and, of course, eventually the discovery of the real killer. It's just nice to have a favorite show back. This is, you know, I was real quickly learning one of the quiet spots of the year entertainment-wise naturally anyways blockbuster movie season has pretty much wrapped up and uh now like we were saying given all the strikes in hollywood we're gonna see tv drying up um although like we also mentioned there's probably still a bit of stuff in the can for streamers like netflix to roll out but this reminds me we were lamenting a couple of years ago remember a bunch of our favorite shows uh had their finales all at the same time like within a week it was succession barry the marvelous mrs Maisel, and ted lasso i saw Alyssa milano post on social media this week an old newspaper ad for a similar situation on nbc in april of 92 where who's the boss Growing Pains and MacGyver all had their series finales on the same night. So talk about the end of an era to have uh, three of the big shows from the 80s ending all in the same night. You just it's it's rare that that sort of thing happens, but uh, wasn't this year wasn't the first time it happened, as it turns out. So there you go. Only murders in the building back for season three on Disney Plus and uh, two episodes in. So far, so good. Up next, we got to find out get the verdict on. The Trench. You're listening to The Couch Potatoes. Welcome back to The Couch Potatoes. I'm Jeff, he's Brett, and Jason Statham is back to fight impossibly big sharks in hand to fin combat in The Meg to The Trench. Jonas, we need your help. Three Megs and who knows what else have escaped the trench. What's the plan here? I'm gonna kill them all. One by one. Rock and roll. Come on. Meg to the trench. Ready PG 13. The Meg to the Trench is a sequel, of course, to 2018's The Meg. That was a surprise hit that made more than half a billion dollars worldwide. It had great marketing, starred in action stalwart in Statham, had a pan-Pacific cast and financing, I believe, that really kind of made it an international film. And being that was, uh, you know, a shark attack movie, well, that plays well across the globe. Everyone's been to the beach. Everyone's thought about sharks in the water while they're swimming. The Meg was a universal story. The movie wasn't that great. Neither good, 
good nor so bad it's good. It was just pretty bland given the opportunity. The dialogue felt first drafty. A lot of the acting was almost confusingly bad. Even the shark kills often felt like missed opportunities, which was a bummer. Nevertheless, it made all that money, and I've watched it a couple of times since 2018. It actually has grown on me more and more each time. And now we have the sequel, and it's more of the same, both for good and for bad. The good is that it's watchable enough and goes bigger in the ways you expect a sequel to go, so it feels like a worthy sequel to The Meg. The bad news, of course, is that that isn't saying much. Again, a lot of it feels like a missed opportunity. And I think the biggest problem with The Meg to The Trench is... The Trench. There's a long part in the middle of the movie that's set in The Trench, which is this ocean under the ocean where the Megs live. And in this section of the movie, we actually didn't get a lot of good Meg action for some reason. I've already, I think, forgotten more of this movie than I remember after two days, but I definitely thought at one point, I thought this was a shark movie. Where are the sharks? Now, they are there, and there's plenty of bitey shark action at the end of the movie. There's just a dead part in the middle that wasn't very exciting. But before we even get to The Trench, we're reintroduced to the gang, at least a couple of the ones who survived the first movie, including the little girl who's now a teenager, and Statham has become her adoptive father, question mark? I actually never figured out who was in charge of this kid. Her uncle's in the movie as well, but it seemed like Statham was actually her caregiver. It's kind of weird. Uh, Cliff Curtis also back as is Paige Kennedy, who picked up a few skills since the last time around. He's always comic relief, and he's in overdrive in this movie. He's also one of the very few movie characters to kind of learn a lesson from the first adventure. Given how apparently easy it was for the filmmakers to just repeat all their sins of the original, it's kind of weird that they would decide that this guy would actually show up for round two, a completely different person and much better prepared to fight sharks. So they're a collection of research scientists and underwater rescue heroes like the first time around. Never really sure what the point of anything they do is, but they're soon back right where they started last time, back in the trench. Again, this stretch, while there are megs around, wasn't really very meggy, but they're also human bad guys this time, and they need to be dealt with as well. It's all kind of boring and predictable, but in the end, the sharks need people to eat, so a bunch of bad guys fits the bill. And then the final act takes us back above the waterline where there's this resort island that's about to be terrorized by Megs and a few other things unlocked from the trench and I thought that the final act actually played pretty well. Pretty fun action. Everyone kind of gets a good moment. Some standard stuff but also pretty effective. The overall story kind of a mess which again is a problem a lot of sequels have trying to have a Meg story but also jamming in the bad guy story and then all the little personal stories and beats. It's hard to cohesively hang all that together. Overall though given the low bar set by the first movie and the fact that it's a sequel I wasn't really expecting too much so it wasn't that disappointing, relatively speaking, but it's also just not a very good movie. Two and a half couch cushions out of five for The Meg to The Trench. And new in theaters this weekend. Well, first up, we've got a video game adaptation that's based on a true story. That sounds kind of weird. But it's the popular racing game series now movie, Gran Turismo. You got this. Only a handful of people in the world can do it. You could be the best, but it's dangerous. These are incredible stakes. You're going to be forced to make split-second decisions that could cost you your life. Get out! Whether you like it or not, you are in this race! Get in the fight! Yes, sir. Gran Turismo, based on a true story. Ready PG-13. 
So the Gran Turismo games debuted in 1997, and they've been crazy successful. And this movie tells the real-life story of one gamer who used his skills to win a competition to then drive a real race car. I haven't checked the full authenticity of the adaptation. I don't care. It's not getting the best reviews. But it co-stars David Harbour and has lots of fast cars, so I think that's good enough for me. And also this weekend, we have an interesting-looking vampire film. The story of Dracula on the last voyage of the Demeter. Dear Lord, may you guide us and protect us from the unknown. Show us light in the darkness and shelter in the cold. Evil is on board. We call him Dracula. In your name, we pray. He's coming! Only in theaters August 11th. The Last Voyage of the Demeter is based on a single chapter from Bram Stoker's novel Dracula. The Demeter is a merchant ship chartered to carry private cargo, 50 unmarked wooden crates from Carpathia to London. Strange things start happening, and well, I'm guessing it doesn't go well for anyone. It looks like it's a neat concept basing a whole movie on one chapter, but the early reviews are not great. So rather than go see something new this weekend, I decided to go back almost 30 years. And I'll tell you what two movies I watched. Next, you're listening to The Couch Potatoes. I'm Brett. He's Jeff. We are The Couch Potatoes. This past weekend was, for me, another rewatch weekend. And yes, The Couch Potatoes do that a lot. We rewatch some old favorites because we watch a lot of new stuff as much as we can. And sometimes on the weekend, you just... Want to turn your brain off and not worry about absorbing something new that you then have to discuss. But even during the rewatches, it can be tough to turn that brain off fully and you still end up watching in a way where you want to discuss it. So I do have some thoughts on what I watched. I watched two films. I was in the mood for some 90s action. All right, pop quiz. Airport. Gunman with one hostage. He's using her for cover. He's almost to a plane. You're 100 feet away. What do you think? Shoot the hostage. What? Go for the good wound and he can't get to the plane with her. Clear shot. You're deeply nuts, you know that? That's Keanu Reeves and Jeff Daniels in the 1994 classic, Speed. All right, gentlemen, what we have here are 13 passengers in an express elevator. Bomb's already taken out cables. Bomber wants $3 million or he blows the emergency brakes. Anything else that'll keep this elevator from falling? Uh, the basement. From director Yann DeBont, who's only directed a handful of films, although he's primarily a cinematographer and his credits there are extensive. But as far as his directing goes, so he started with Speed, then Twister, The Haunting, Speed 2 Cruise Control, and Lara Croft, Tomb Raider, The Cradle of Life. So clearly his first two movies are his best. Here's a bit more of what he serves up in Speed. The game began... Very exciting, Jack. Some close calls, huh? When someone put the city of Los Angeles to the ultimate test. Pop quiz, hot shot. There's a bomb on a bus. Once the bus goes 50 miles an hour, the bomb is armed. If it drops below 50, it blows up. What do you do? What do you do? Now. Are you insured? Yeah, why? 
He's the only solution. We just got a ransom demand from your terrorist. Says he's rigged the city bus. Where's Jack? Where do you think? So this movie still rocks, but doesn't mean I don't have any nitpicks. First, if you've never seen Speed, or it's been a long time, you already heard the basic plot in that clip. It's so simple. Reeves plays LAPD officer Jack Traven, and he learns from a mad bomber, played by Dennis Hopper, that a city bus has been rigged with a bomb that will explode if it hits 50 miles per hour and then goes back down below 50. So Jack has to find the bus and help keep it above 50, no matter how ridiculous the circumstances. And we'll get to some of that ridiculousness in a moment. But first, some of the good. 95% on Rotten Tomatoes. I was shocked to see it was that high. I figured it would be in the 60s, maybe the 70s, but clearly the critics of the day just enjoyed this as much as I did back then. And I'm happy to say that it's still rocks like just what a fun movie it's tense right from the start that tension almost never lets go it's just exciting like from the opening scene where jack and his partner harry who's played by jeff daniels lead the effort to rescue people from an elevator rigged with bombs to pretty much everything on the bus and beyond it's just such a heart-pounding thriller and in spite of how ridiculous the movie can be it tells its story with such conviction that Who cares? But let's get to some of that ridiculousness. There is no way. And the rock means no way that bus would have cleared that stupid gap. Jeff, have you seen? You've seen Speed, right? I've seen it, yes. And uh, I still remember thinking, it's like, yeah, that gap's way too big for a bus to jump. And spoiler alert, if you haven't seen Speed yet, there's a scene where they're driving on a freeway that isn't open yet. So it's free and clear from traffic. But then, oops, there's a gap in the road, a big one. And they learn that they're going to have to try to jump it to keep going. I could see it working if they were jumping off of a ramp like Super Dave, but they're not. This road, yeah, it had a tiny incline, but when the bus goes off, you can actually see. So it sort of goes on a 45-degree angle where the, the front of the bus points up, and the back of the bus, it like drops well below the road level already. And yet somehow, of course, thanks to movie magic, the bus clears the gap. But... It's just the way they set up the scene. It was so tense. Everyone's scared they're going to die. Everyone assumes they're going to die. And then they make it. So it's this celebration. And Captain McMahon, played by a macho Joe Morton in this movie, starts shouting, Let's go! Let's go! And that is a phrase that's kind of everywhere now. And I sort of wonder, like, did it start in this movie? Because I'd have to look up the etymology of that. But I was shocked to hear that phrase uh, said exactly. I mean, there's not many ways you can say let's go. But I don't know. I just I kind of wonder about that. Anyway, it doesn't matter if where that started. And if I had to guess, by the way, I think that bus would probably just have shot forward and straight down the second it left the road. Not tilted up. Whatever. Who cares? Uh, Other nitpicks. (laughs) When, he, when Keanu has to commandeer a car to get on the bus, he pulls a gun on the civilian. He pulls his badge and says, LAPD, I need your car. And the guy just kind of says, what? And he pulls his gun on him. Like, give me a break. And then when that civilian smashes into the tubs of water after Keanu's already gotten off the, out of the car and onto the bus, 
Um, he was not wearing a seatbelt. Like he he would have been thrown from that automobile for a mile. Anyway, these are silly nitpicks. This is an, an awesome action movie, and it's under two hours, which is fantastic. And I, as much as I love the Matrix movies, yes, movies, I don't just love the first one, and as much as I love John Wick and all those movies, I feel like this might be Keanu's best role. Really? I yeah. don't I don't remember him in this movie. Like I haven't I haven't seen this movie since the nineties. Yeah. I've almost watched it a bunch. I think now I'm probably gonna watch it pretty soon again now that you've mentioned it. But so I, I don't remember him specifically in this movie, but I'm shocked to hear you say that just given the matrix yeah. love that you have. Well I think it, well, first of all, he got he got sort of jacked up for this a little bit. He got and he was in good shape. But Keanu has a tendency to, and they they sort of playfully, I think, make fun of it within the John Wick movies. But he's got that way of, like, over delivering, or he's got that weird yeah. delivery. Yeah. But mirrored with his, he's a, he plays a not a like a really macho jerk, but he's part of the this LAPD force, the the, the SWAT or whatever, and so he's he considers himself a big strong guy, heroic. So he's got kind of this macho attitude. So it just sort of, I don't know, it just works. I, I and I really cared about this character and the the chemistry that he had with Sandra Bullock was terrific as yeah. well. She was a great piece of casting. Dennis Hopper is perfect as the bad guy. It's just it's one of the most ridiculous movies ever made, and it is thrilling, and I still love it, even at under two hours. It somehow almost feels too long. I think it's because they finally get off the bus, but then there's one more hardship and uh, they're involving a speeding subway and it almost is exhausting. But when I saw that it was under two hours, I thought, wow. So I'm going to give speed four and a half couch cushions out of five. This movie will always be entertaining. Keanu Reeves, Dennis Hopper, Sandra Bullock. Pop quiz. You have a hair trigger aimed at your head. What do you do? What do you do? Speed. Get ready for rush hour. And coming up next, I'm going to tell you about the other 90s actioner that I watched. And Jeff is going to offer some thoughts on a movie that I just discussed a couple of weeks ago. Curious to see what Jeff thinks. So we'll get to that next. You are listening to The Couch Potatoes. Welcome back to The Couch Potatoes. I'm Jeff. He's Brett. And Brett, you mentioned a couple of weeks ago a movie you rewatched, and you made such a compelling case for it that I rewatched it this week from 2014. Matthew McConaughey stars in Christopher Nolan's Interstellar. The Earth is dying on November 7th. I've got kids, Professor. Get out there and save them. Here we go. The director of Inception and the Dark Knight trilogy takes the motion picture experience to a whole new world. Hang in there, come on. It's too damn fast. I'm ready to make it. Yes, you are. Hang on. Oh, you're not prepared for this. Interstellar, November 7th, rated PG-13. I gave this movie three and a half couch cushions out of five back in 2014 when I saw it in IMAX, and I said it wasn't really worth the IMAX, although it is definitely more worth the IMAX than Oppenheimer was, just visually speaking. There are also, you know, there are some incredible space shots in Interstellar. I also said he was trying too hard to be Stanley Kubrick, trying to make his 2001 A Space Odyssey, and basically that uh, Interstellar just felt a little too thirsty in that regard. That's a little ironic, actually, given that Barbie is the movie out now that literally pays homage to 2001 in its opening scene. I think my biggest problem back in 2014, as it is today, is that the ending is a step too far, and there may be some sort of paradox there. One character manipulating another character to go on a hero's journey that they couldn't have gone on without that push, but 
that push wouldn't exist if they hadn't gone on the journey. So kind of breaks my brain to think about it. And the other thing that broke my brain, and I think subconsciously kind of ruined everything that came after it for me, is the time jump. Uh, minor spoiler for a 10-year-old movie, but the one thing I enjoy about space travel in this movie is that sci-fi movies never get right is that time moves differently on different planets. Our clocks are very much tied to our rotation, the Earth spinning on its axis, and of course the calendar tied to the Earth's orbit around the sun. Three days on Earth and three days on Mars are not the same length, but you know, Star Wars would have you believe that time is uniform across the galaxy. Mind you, that's a different galaxy, so maybe their time works differently somehow. Anyways, Interstellar has a bit where some people go down to a planet for a couple of hours, but when they come back up to their ship, they realize that nearly 25 years have passed. That broke my brain the first time around, and it gave me a sickly feeling even this time. And I guess credit to Nolan because it's very effective, but I found it to be so unmooring from reality that I just couldn't or wouldn't get back into the story 100%. And this was already after the beginning of the movie, which offered a very bleak look at the near future. And I'm not convinced Christopher Nolan has human feelings. His movies feel so cold <laughs> and keep you so distant as a viewer that I, I don't think he gets the benefits of getting the audience to care about characters. He just wants to pull his little tricks and stunts, which can be very entertaining and often are enough. But Interstellar is also striving to be an emotional human story. And it has moments, but it also keeps you at bay by being such a bummer from the jump. Pretty sure that's why I've never revisited it until now. Uh, leaving that out, it is a decent space story. I, there's a terrific cameo by an unbilled A-list actor who may be the best of cameos. I'm thinking of two others right now that were just aces. So uh, that actor, if you know who I'm talking about, is awesome at cameos. I will say, th I, you know, three and a half couch cushions back in 2014. I think in 2023, I'll downgrade it a bit to three couch cushions for Interstellar, <laughs> which is available now on Netflix. You can watch it. <laughs> so he goes back to rewatch it because I enjoyed yeah. it. And he, I, <laughs> he I like dislikes it, it even more. Oh, some of it's just... It's just like, come on, like, let's have some fun here. Yeah. You know, I, I agree. It is it is bleak, and the, the, the time stuff is confusing, and it's difficult to sort of understand. I, I, I kind of get it, and yet I don't, and the, the ending ultimately is weird, yeah. and I did point that out. But I, yeah. I don't know. I, I enjoyed the, the, the emotion that he was able, that the, the, the feelingless Christopher Nolan was able to <laughs> drum out of Matthew McConaughey. I thought McConaughey's performance was excellent. And in the last few minutes we have here, I want to tell you about the other 90s action movie I decided to watch again. I told you about Speed already. If you want to watch Speed on streaming, I watched it on Blu-ray, but it is also available on Disney+. And the other 90s action movie that I watched, a Michael Bay classic from 1996. Following is a state secret, gentlemen. Disclose it to any party and you will be subject to prosecution. His name is John Mason, British national incarcerated on Alcatraz in 1962, escaped in 63. There's no identity in the United States or Great Britain. He does not exist. Nicolas Cage and Sean Connery star in The Rock. Welcome to The Rock. Nicolas Cage plays a chemical weapon specialist for the FBI. Connery plays a British operative who has been locked away for 30 years, but they need his help because he's the only person who ever broke out of Alcatraz, and now they need to break in. The prison has been taken over by several Marines led by Ed Harris. They've got hostages, 
and several rockets armed with VX gas, which is some really funky stuff. And the fun part is they brought Cage's Stanley Goodspeed along for the ride. You sure you're ready for this? I'll do my best. Your best? Losers always whine about their best. Winners go home and f*** the prom queen. Carla was the prom queen. Really? Yeah. Now, The Rock is only at 67% on Rotten Tomatoes, which kind of makes me angry because, to me, this, by far, is Michael Bay's best, most entertaining movie. Both The Rock and Speed, I should point out as well, they kind of have similar musical scores. I looked to see if it was the same one uh, Hans Zimmer had a hand in, The Rock. He was a co, uh, the co-composer. Different, but I guess that's just, that's just the 90s. It's just hard-driving, adrenalized orchestral music, and I love it. And I should also point out as well, there is a Criterion Collection edition of this movie. I remember seeing it on DVD some 20-odd years ago. I'm not sure if it ever made it to Blu-ray. But the DVD was 75 bucks at the time, and I just could not justify the cost. But boy, do I wish I had. And always curious, was... Was this thing script doctored by Quentin Tarantino? I actually had never heard of that. This is the first time hearing of it. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, I think he was involved in the script, so I'm curious to know if he was responsible for this gem of a scene. I think we got started off on the wrong foot. Stan Goodspeed, FBI. Uh, let's talk music. Do you like the Elton John song, Rocket Man? I don't like soft-ass Oh, you don't? Well, I only bring it up because uh, it's you. You're the Rocket Man. It is one of the most entertaining <laughs> films I've ever watched. And by the way, it does look like Quentin Tarantino it, had a hand in uh, that writing that like movie. Yeah. So, but yeah, I just, I love it. I, it's, it, it's one of the most rewatchable movies for me. I watch I think I just watched it last year. So it's sort of entered the staple of movies that I got to watch at least once a year. So I'm also going to give that four and a half couch cushions out of five. It's two hours, 15 minutes. There's probably some stuff that could have been cut, but not too much. Uh, but it's just a good time. And if you don't own that, like I do, I have it on Blu-ray, you can find it as well on Disney+. Plus. I'm Brett, he's Jeff, we are the Couch Potatoes. Remember, if it requires getting up off the couch, don't bother.